John 6, that we're going to, we're staying with the Israelites in the desert and we're going to be looking at uh, the next test that they faced and see how they went with it. And then we're going to look at a comparable situation or two with Jesus and see how he went with it. And that's the focus for the second half of this series. Last week, Wall spoke to you about what? Evangelism. Yep. And the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea and the Exodus. And how did the, how did the Jews go with that? They wanted to go back to Egypt, so they weren't so thankful to God for getting them out. Janice? Yep, they found stuff in the Red Sea. Yep. And what will be... What did you look at in terms of Jesus? If, if that's how the Israelites approached the Red Sea and failed, how did, how did, what did we learn about Jesus? Jesus is more, more faithful than we are. Jesus is more faithful than we are, yep. What about... We're in a spiritual battle. What was that, sorry? The, um, when God parted the Red Sea, that was a true story. But when Jesus was the way of him, that was a true story. Jesus is the way. We follow Jesus. We trust Jesus, unlike the Israelites. The Israelites didn't trust God, and they wanted to turn back to Egypt. And Jesus declared that he is the way. And he followed the Father according to the Father's plans. Yep. At, we'll cover some of that in the coming weeks. Today we're going to look at the bread, manna, and how Jesus went about that and what overlaps we have with Jesus in that situation. So before we start, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are great, that you are holy, that you are perfect, and that you are close to us. And as we look at your word, your revelation of yourself to us, we pray that the Holy Spirit that... It, Help the people write what they wrote now lives in us and I pray that it reveals to us what you were saying, Lord, so that we can live and be the people you want us to be. So help us to understand your word clearer in your son's name. Amen. So if we went back to the beginning of chapter 16 and started at verse 1 rather than verse 14 like I asked Ivan to... I asked Ivan to start at verse 14, but if we went back to the beginning of the chapter, 
we read that the Israelites are already complaining again. So they complained when, as they're walking out of Egypt. They complained when they got to the Red Sea. They've now crossed the Red Sea. God has provided miraculously all these plagues and then freed them. They crossed the Red Sea and they're complaining again about a lack of food. And you would think that their memories, as convenient as they are, if you look at what they're remembering and their attitudes, you would think that in Egypt they were the masters and the Egyptians were the slave. You would think that the roles were reversed because of how they remember Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Egypt was so good. We loved Egypt. Egypt was great. How could we ever want to really leave Egypt? Is their attitude. And they seem to have conveniently forgotten what was actually going on in Egypt when they were there. And at later points they complain about the onions and all these wonderful things they had in Egypt and... All I can say is Egypt must have had the world's greatest onions because although I don't mind the odd onion or two on some sausages and bread, it's not something I would sacrifice my freedom for. <laughs> so already the Israelites are complaining again. And it raises an interesting question straight off the bat. How often do we do that? How often do we complain about the situation we're in and as we start to journey with God and trust God with a situation and God starts changing that situation, he takes us out of that situation and our lives change, we get halfway through the journey and we go, oh, the last situation was so good. If only I could go back again. We don't do that, do we? <laughs> we do we know better than the Egyptians our memories are just as convenient as the Israelite memories we think that whatever we don't have is better than what we do have and the Israelites are no better we think to ourselves if only I had the bigger house if only I had the more expensive car if only I had the Nicer caravan, if only I, if only I, if only I, if only I. And whatever we don't have is more important than what God has provided for us at that point. Even though we were the ones who cried out to God, just like the Israelites were the ones who cried out to God, save us from these awful Egyptians, he does, and it's still not good enough. They're still not happy but we know better. <laughs> There's a saying, and I don't know who said it first, but I, I, I like it because I, I think it really relates to human nature quite well. It, when people complain about the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people look at that and they go, that's rather, that's rather selfish. There's only one way. That's arrogant. And the response to that by this person, whoever it was, says, human nature is such that God could have offered a thousand ways to get to him. And we would still complain there's not a thousand and one. 
And that's human nature. And that's the Israelite nature right here that we're looking at now. He's saved them from Egypt. He's rescued them from being slaves, being in prison, being treated like dirt. He's taken them out. He's provided all this Egyptian wealth along the way, if you remember. He then performs this absolute miracle in crossing the Red Sea. At some point, don't you think by now the Israelites would be starting to think this God's got, a, got our back. He's, he's, he's going to look after us. But no, now I'm hungry. I want that cheeseburger. Can we take a detour to McDonald's? And they have not learnt yet. Now, manna, so, he, so God provides manna. Manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? That's the reference in, in Exodus. It, the word manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? In other words, they had no idea what it was. But it came each morning and God gives some specific instructions as to how to go about this. This thing, each day you collect a certain amount, you eat it. Each person collects what they need for their tent, their family. And you eat it on that day, don't save it for the next day. Why? Not because they didn't add, add preservatives in, not because God hadn't invented preservatives yet, but because he wanted them to trust him daily. It was all about God saying to them, trust me. And so he gives them exact instructions as to how much to collect, how much you need, how, how does it go about it, collect it each day, and on the sixth day of the week, you collect two days worth, and I'll show you just how great I am, because although if you collect it on a Wednesday, it's not going to last into Thursday, when you collect it on the sixth day, it will last through the seventh day, because I can do that, because I'm God. And so Moses gives these instructions, and so what do they do? They don't listen again. And we start to pick up on a bit of a trend again. So some people decide they'll be really smart and on Wednesday they pick up two days worth just in case God doesn't provide. And what happens? <laughs> it goes off, gets maggots, gets worms, stinks. Just like God said. And then we get to the sixth day and everyone collects what they need and some people go, again go I'm going to go out on the seventh day. I know God said not to but I'm going to go out anyway just in case. And guess how much they found on the none. Who would have thought it was going to happen just like God said? What were the odds? But the Israelites are slow learners. And they hear what God says, but they don't do. And to hear and not do is to not hear. Because if you don't do what you hear, then you didn't really hear it. It's head knowledge, maybe. Maybe but it's not heart knowledge. 
And that's the difference. And I know I've spoken about it a number of times, and I'll speak about it probably a number more times in the next few weeks. But that's the difference between believers and followers. A believer knows something, a follower does something. A follower actually puts into practice what they know in their head. A believer, maybe, maybe not. And that's the big difference between a believer in Christ and a follower of Christ. Followers actually do, they journey, they're moving. Believer has head knowledge and that's it. And the Israelites are not following God. They're not putting into practice what God says. And so I ask you the question, have they really heard God? Are they truly listening to God? If they're not putting into practice what God's saying, are they actually listening? But we know better. I'll save you answering that one because the answer incriminates us as well. Because we're no different. We hear what God says, but do we put it into practice? No. We still think we know better. We're quite willing to listen to God and do what God says when it suits us, when it benefits us, but when it requires something of us, when it requires a sacrifice from us, all of a sudden we need to work out whether it was, it's actually culturally applicable or not, or whether we should or not. Or We start raising all sorts of objections rather than actually doing what God says. And a perfect example of this is the Sabbath. God says, don't collect manna on the, sa- on the Sabbath. Why? Because it's a day of rest. And so some people decide, no, well, God wasn't serious about that, so I'm going to go collect manna on the Sabbath. And there's no manna to collect. But it raises an interesting point. What's the Sabbath, doesn't it? And we could spend a whole sermon on this, and we're not going to today. But it illustrates... An important little point about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never created because God thought that the Israelites didn't have enough to do. And so he thought, I'm going to create another law. Just give them another hoop to jump through because I'm bored, they're bored, let's create laws. That was never the intent. The intent was always about the Sabbath being a day where God is freeing us up from our regular duty so we can draw closer to him. That was always the intent of the Sabbath. The Israelites over the centuries made it into a law and they developed all sorts of other laws surrounding that law and how far you could walk on a particular on the Sabbath day and if you walk further than that particular distance you're in trouble with God because that was deemed work and that's why Jesus kept getting in trouble for healing people on the Sabbath, because healing people was deemed work. It was never about that. It was always about drawing closer to God, freeing up your time rather than ploughing your field on the Sabbath. Spend the time talking with God, worshipping God, getting to know God, serving God. That's what the Sabbath was always about. And it's not more obvious in the Bible than right here when it was given instructions. Instead of spending half your morning running around the camp looking for manna, I want you just to stop. Stop. There ain't going to be manna there. Don't look. 
I want you to draw close to me on that day. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've given you your freedom. I've helped you cross the Red Sea. In fact, I didn't help you. I got you across the Red Sea. Without me, you'd be dead. I want you to draw close to me. It's a relationship. It's not a list of to-do things, either by you or by me. It's not about that. It's a relationship. And God's saying, you need to trust me. Because trust is the basis of all good relationships. Name me a good relationship that doesn't have trust at the basis of it. There isn't one. There is not a single relationship in the world, on any level, where trust is not vital. And it's no difference between us and God, the Israelites and God. No different. So before we jump to the John reading, there's another passage I want to read first. As we start to look at Jesus, we've seen how the Israelites failed the whole manna, bread thing in in the desert. So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at Jesus. I want to read a short passage from Matthew chapter 4. Starting at verse 1. Matthew chapter 4 and starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here we have a direct correlation. Israelites were in the desert 40 years and they failed miserably at pretty much every turn. Jesus spends 40 days, 40 nights in the desert with no food. And at the end of the 40 days, Satan comes to him to tempt him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not convinced I would have gotten through 40 days. I would have been hungry, a lot hungrier before that point. And I'm not prone to getting hangry, but I think after probably the 20 day mark, I'm gonna start getting pretty hangry. But Jesus has been there 40 days, 40 nights, hasn't eaten, and the tempter comes and says, if you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. In other words, how's the old rumblings going? How's the, wouldn't you like a nice, big, fat, juicy pizza? Just sitting there for you. Notice the Israelites complained pretty much straight away when they crossed the Red Sea because they were hungry. Every opportunity the Israelites got, they complained, Jesus has had 40 days to complain and hasn't. Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, Jesus in the desert for 40 days. One spent the whole time complaining, one did not. And Jesus succeeds where the Israelites failed. Now you may never really have thought about 
the desert story and why Jesus was in the desert. Maybe you've thought about it a little bit. Because if you remember, it comes straight on the back of Jesus being baptised. Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, lands on his shoulder. The Father says, this is my son who I'm pleased, well pleased with. This is it. This, the, the, the curtains have opened. The show is about to start. And then Jesus takes off to the desert for 40 days. Anyone else get struck by the oddness of that? It's pretty, pretty strange, don't you think? But there's a, there's a logical reason for it. Jesus has just spent 30 years as a carpenter. Jesus is 30 years old. From the age of 12, 13, 14, he would have been working as a carpenter. Now at 30, his ministry is about to start. Okay? So from being a carpenter in the back blocks where the town he lived in would have known him and known who he was as such, the carpenter, and would have had relationships with all these people, he's about to get thrust into the limelight of the nation. Now that requires a mental attitude adjustment. He needs time to prepare for that new role, and that's what the time was in the desert. Just like with the Israelites, they've been slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, and they're about to go into their promised land, but not just so they can live a lap of luxury, but so that they can be the light unto the nations. That was the whole purpose of God freeing the Israelites and setting them up in the promised land. It wasn't just so they could be comfortable, it was to reveal God to the nations around them, to the world. That was Israel, the Israelite nation's job, to reveal God to the people. That's what they were called to do. It's a new role from being a slave to being God's chosen people. And so the time in the desert is God's way of helping the people to adjust to that new role. Why? Because they've got to rely on God. You can't just go, open that door, shut that door, we're out of Egypt now, open the door to the promised land, wonderful, and let's just sit on deck chairs. It requires a mental adjustment. And so God's doing that in the desert with the Israelites and Jesus is doing that in the 40 days that he is in the desert by himself. He's preparing himself mentally for this next stage. His ministry that is about to start. It's a preparation phase. So, how often do we get to the point where we start off on a journey with God, but halfway through the journey we decide, I don't like this journey anymore, and we try and do a U-turn and go back. How many times? I'll let you ponder that. So then we come to the John reading. And this is where Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. 
And it comes on the back of him feeding the 5,000 people. Well, in reality, it's 5,000 men. It's probably closer to 15,000 people that he fed with the five loaves, two fish. He's just done that the day prior, sent the disciples off, Jesus walks across the lake. Next day, people go, how did you get here? Let's sit down and have another feast. And Jesus goes, you're only interested in your bellies. If you knew who I was, you would know that I am the bread of life. Come to me, I will sustain you. I will help you live the life that you were created to live. There's so many things in this passage in John, but he is just fed 15,000 people. That's men, women and kids. Okay? And the Israelites who's talking to you the next day, point back to Moses with the manna and they go, Moses provided us manna, which is bread from heaven, and Jesus goes, he didn't provide you anything. It was God who provided it. For a start. But what we see is Jesus saying, there is something greater than the physical here. There is something better. I've just fed 15,000 people and you asked me for a sign. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's a pretty decent sort of sign. <laughs> 15,000 people with five bread rolls and two fish. But they ask for a sign. See... The physical, Jesus fed them, why? Because he was teaching them spiritual, but the next day all they were interested in it was the physical again. The physical should point us to the spiritual. Jesus' miracles, Jesus' claims, the life that Jesus lived, the death that he died, the resurrection, that the physical points us to the spiritual. But too often we're only interested in the physical. We're not interested in looking at the spiritual. Ever heard the saying, ignorance is bliss? We don't want to look past the physical because to look past the physical and see the spiritual requires something more of us. A few weeks ago when I was leading, I refused to, despite many requests for a performance, I talked about a song by Joan Osborne. What if God was one of us? And I resisted the temptation to sing it. Lucky for those who were there that day. But we spoke about one of the verses in particular where it says, Would you want to see God face to face if seeing meant that you had to believe? in the prophets and the saints. And, and many people go, no. Many people would rather the, be ignorant than to see God face to face, get a clear answer face to face. Why? Because they know 
that if they do see God face to face, then it requires something. But we're no different. We're no different. Around us today, there is so much that points to God. There is so much in the world that points to God, but we don't want to see that. We don't want to see beyond the physical. The Israelites didn't want to look beyond the physical. The crowds with Jesus didn't want to look beyond the physical. We don't want to look beyond the physical. The person who looked beyond the physical was the one person who didn't need to, Jesus. And he sets the example for us. Jesus succeeds where the Israelites failed and where we regularly fail. So what, what do we do with that? What do we do with all this? Well, let me ask you this question. What is your bread? What is the thing that you look to to sustain you? Jesus. Is it? The Word of God. Is it? That's a very good answer. I ask, is it? I ask, is it? Because if it is, that is lived out each and every day. Our actions, our words, what we say, what we hear, how we see situations, all of that, how we live and interact with each other, both in our family and in the community, everything that we do, say, think, speak, here, everything reflects and points to what we rely on to be our bread. Now, hopefully it is Jesus. Hopefully it is the Word of God. Hopefully it is the Bible. I do hope and pray that it is. But is it? Because that's what gets lived out. See, too often what we do is we, we say God is our bread... But then we make God jump through hoops. We say, God, if you're God, you do this. I want this, God, and I will trust you if you do this for me. In other words, we make God qualify in order to be our God. Either he's God or he's not. But he's not someone who needs to fill in a job application. We don't ring God's references. Oh, so you know uh, God, do you? How's he performed in the last couple billion years? Oh, you give him a good rap? Okay. Has there been any complaints about him before? (laughs) Has he received a written warning? (laughs) Too often, we make God qualify. We make God jump through hoops. We put ourselves in charge of God. We understand that we can't save ourselves, but we then make God apply for the job. Does that sound like a bit of a contradiction? It should. God doesn't need to apply. Either he is God or he's not God. If he is God, then he should be our bread. If he's not God, then he's nothing. 
He's a figment of our imaginations. So this week, I want to challenge you to live and think and speak and listen and love and interact with everyone you come into contact with, with your church family, with those you work with, with your neighbours, with the people down the shops, with everyone. Interact with them, interact just with you and God by yourself with an awareness that we, without God, are shot ducks. We are completely desperate, hopeless, without hope. Without God. And I say that deliberately, that I want that to influence how we act in this physical world, because how we act in this physical world, we are God's reflection to the world. That was the purpose of Israel as a nation. They failed miserably. That was the purpose of the church. And guess what the church is doing? Failing miserably. (laughs) We are physically to reflect what is spiritual. Just like people back in Exodus, the Israelites didn't want to look at the spiritual and just like the people in Jesus' day didn't want to acknowledge the spiritual, they just wanted the physical, we are reflecting the spiritual into the physical today. And without that, we are salt that has lost its saltiness. And if you want to know what Jesus thinks of salt that's lost its saltiness, go back and have a read Matthew 6. Five and six makes it pretty clear. It's not pretty. But the fir- one of the first steps to living this way where we do reflect the spiritual into the physical is by being acutely aware of our true position. We don't hold, hold the bargaining chips. We can't demand things of God and expect him to, oh, yes, yes, absolutely, because you said so, boss. We are the servants. We are not the masters. And so this week, be aware of how we stand before God because when we truly understand that we stand before God because of nothing that we have done other than the blood of Christ the fact that he died for us, the fact that he is our bread of life, the fact that he sustains us, and that's the only reason we get to stand in front of God, the more we become aware of that, the more our actions to everyone else, our words, our thoughts, our, the way we hear them, changes and then reflects Christ better. But it's not just reflecting Christ for the sake of reflecting Christ. It's giving everyone we come into contact with a picture of the spiritual. The physical reflecting the spiritual more and more. That's what we're called to do. And without that, the physical is useless. If we're not reflecting God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great and heavenly God. And I know that we fail you on such a regular occurrence. And we're sorry for that. We are truly sorry that 
we don't reflect you to each other and to the world and how we're meant to and how you've called us to and too often we're like the Israelites. We think we know better than you. And I ask that you will help change us, mould us, shape us so that we do reflect you to the world so that they can come to know you for themselves because you are an awesome God and that is what we desire to know you better ourselves and to help more people come to know you. and Because that's why we were created. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.